This broadcast is coming to you from Redfern, which is on unceded Gadigal land. I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respect to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to the communities of Redfern and Waterloo. Gadigal people have been sharing stories and songs on this land since the beginning of time. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Record Collections and Recollections, Out of the Box, with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, good afternoon. Mia Hull here on the podcast, streaming online and live on your radio from 12 to 1pm. This is Out of the Box. Every Thursday, I sit down with one guest and dive into the music they love and the life they've led and how those two interact. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Pash. Dan has just submitted his PhD at the University of Sydney, majoring in philosophy. Before that, he was in an Adelaide band called Leader Cheetah, which in 2011 was championed as Australia's biggest export by Rolling Stone. He's also the wearer of a cochlear implant, which, as you might imagine, has impacted his musical career and his thesis in some really interesting ways, which we're going to get into later in the show. We're also going to get into Dan's stories and the songs that he loves. Thanks for joining me on the show today, Dan. Oh, thanks very much for having me. Let's start from the very beginning. Where does your life begin? Uh, in Adelaide, in uh, Glenelg, suburb, seaside suburb of Glenelg. Um, yeah, both my parents, parents are born and bred in, in Adelaide, and uh, that's where I lived for the first 30-odd years of my life. I have a half-brother named Ben, and uh, we didn't see all that much of each other growing up. He uh, grew up with his mum in Melbourne. So for the most part, it's just you and your parents at home? Pretty much. Yeah, pretty classic only child kind of (laughs) scenario, really. And what were your parents doing for work? My dad was a uh, lawyer, and my mum at the time was a dental therapist, um, but she went through a number of different careers. And your dad played clarinet as well, didn't he? He did, yes. Um, he was a clarinetist and still is. Uh, he plays with the Only Chamber Orchestra still in, in Adelaide. And uh, yeah, he was, he was a big kind of, that was a big musical influence for me uh, initially. And at what point did you decide that you wanted to be a part of that and make music for yourself? I think fairly early on, yeah. I, I was um, pretty keen. I was probably pestering my, my parents for, for my own instrument of some kind pretty early on. Um, and so I wanted to play the clarinet, um, but I was a little too young to, to hold it because they're quite big. Uh, <laughs> so I had to start with recorder. I think, you know, partly because it's cheap and easy and partly to sort of test my uh, commitment. It's like, well, if you, if you get through this, get through a year of this, we'll, we'll let you have an instrument. It's also a rite of passage for an Australian kid to have a recorder, <laughs> I think. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They're kind of horrible sounding, really shrill instruments when, when you think about it. But um, yes, a rite of passage indeed. It's a rite of passage for the parents to put up with it, I guess. Um, but yeah, I eventually got my own clarinet and uh, then I was kind of, yeah, there was no stopping me after that. And around the time that this is happening, you start to experience issues with your health. Tell me about that. I did, yeah, so I, um, I had uh, issues of um, cyclical vomiting and sort of waking up with a sort of migraine, combination of migraine and nausea and sort of um, starting to throw up and then not being able to stop. 
uh, and then sort of ending up in hospital on a drip to sort of get rehydrated. This this came on fairly early. I think it was a combination of a few things. I had a, an operation, a skin graft when I was very young. I had a, a pretty bad burn on my back and I had a really bad in, uh, response to the uh, anesthetic or something. And so that was the first episode of like really bad vomiting. And then from then on at different points in my life when I was under a lot of stress or pressure or something, this anxiety would surface and then that would sort of trigger the whole thing all over again. So yeah, it was really weird at the time. We had a whole range of different diagnoses on it, uh, one of which was uh, this, this specialist tried to convince us it was abdominal migraine, but I don't think that Can that term... happen? I've never heard of that before. <laughs> well, I don't think the term caught on. I think he was trying to get like... He was trying to know, invent that. Yeah, he was trying to get a grant <laughs> or something probably. He wanted to use use me as a study or something. But um, When you yeah. say vomiting that didn't stop, how long do those episodes last? Uh, not, not more than like a couple of days. It just sort of affected me in the sense that I would try to avoid, as I got older, like it lasted into my sort of early 20s. And, and by that stage, I, I gave up alcohol. I, I gave up staying up really late because anything at all that might trigger a slight nausea or anything would just set the whole process off. So it, it definitely affected my lifestyle a bit, this sort of mystery ailment. By that point, had you come to a better understanding of what the triggers were? I think I didn't fully appreciate it until um, probably sometime in my mid-20s when I had some other kind of psychological issues that made me sort of go back to the source a little bit and consider the anxiety and, and depression that were sort of underlying it. So at that stage, I got sort of like a, a combination of some medication and cognitive behavioral therapy, something called graded exposure therapy, which involves gradually exposing myself to situations that provoke nausea and stuff. So I took, on my doctor's advice, I took up drinking again, <laughs> which was interesting. But yeah, we, after going through that process, it's, it's never, never bothered me since. So yeah, it was, uh, it took me too long to figure that out, but, but we got there in the end. How did you comfort yourself before getting treatment for that? Well, there wasn't many. There weren't many things that worked. Actually, for a little while, it would be you know the first shot of like anti-nausea um, medication that the GP gave me, and then that didn't work. And then the next, the next few times, it was like just going to the hospital and the doctors kind of like putting on the drip. That that worked, but eventually that stopped working. And funnily enough, the only thing that that really worked when when it was kind of at its worst was music. And uh, there was. A recording in particular was actually a VHS tape of um, Neil Young and Crazy Horse playing uh, four tracks from the record Sleeps with Angels, which is my favorite album of all time. And the footage, something about it just seemed to reset my brain in some way. It, it was just as if uh, putting on that, that record or that, that video just kind of immediately made me feel kind of safe and nurtured and relaxed. It was something to do with those four guys who were like already pushing 60 probably just committing heart and soul to this performance, this music, and just giving everything. Uh, and it, the combination of that with Neil Young's voice and just his general presence, it, it just sort of said, you know, it's it's okay, kid. You know, I've been through some stuff. It's, <laughs> it's, it's all a joke in the end. It's going to be totally fine. It's just something about that music. It was... The lead singer and songwriter in this another band that I was in, Leader Cheated, Dan Cranich, he and I had this phrase that we would use talking about music, which, you know, we'd be listening, we'd be assessing some sort of new new track or something. We'd go, oh, it's all right, but it's not deathbed music. Deathbed music being like the music that you would choose to listen to on your, you know, with your last 10 minutes of life to reaffirm your own humanity or something. To me, that that uh, that record, and particularly a song called Prime of Life, is is 
quintessential deathbed music. Let's (laughs) slide the VHS into the machine, (laughs) create a safe space for you to die. Thank you. (laughs) Appreciate it. It's Prime Life on FBI Radio 94.5 by Neil Young and Crazy Horse. It's the Prime of Young and Crazy Horse on Out of the Box. The song was called Prime Life and it was a track chosen by my guest on the show, Dan Pash. We're rolling through the records and stories from Dan's life and talking about how those two things interact. Dan, where did you attend high school? I went to um, a special music school in Adelaide called uh, Brighton High. I think it's called Brighton Secondary now. Um, and I went there just for the last three years of high school uh, because uh, I really wanted to pursue classical music at the time. And that was a school that had a bunch of special programs as far as not only performance, but the com- composition and music theory and musicology and that kind of stuff. Were you still a clarinet player when you got there? Definitely, yeah. Clarinet was my primary instrument still. Um, by that stage, I was also playing a lot of guitar as well, though. Um, and. Uh, the full story of my time at Brighton ended up being as much guitar-based music as clarinet-based music. And while you were there, you discovered punk rock. <laughs> I, I probably uh, probably had discovered it maybe just, just before yeah. I went there, but yeah, it was definitely... Um, Tell me about the first time you heard punk rock music. What was that like for you? I think, you know, very hard to sort of pinpoint an exact time. It would have been to do with probably listening to the radio a lot um, at that Age. I didn't have, you know, I had, a, had an older brother, but I didn't. He wasn't around. I, it wasn't like I could go through his record collection and stuff. Um, and I, neither of my parents really had much by way of that that kind of music. They had great collections on the whole, but yeah, no. I think just hearing maybe like you know Green Day on Triple J or something probably when I was like fourteen or, or fifteen was pretty exciting. And there's something to do with the, the combination of the the melody and just the the, the relentless kind of energy this sort of right hand like soaring away at, at power chords. It just looked like a whole bunch of fun, really. <laughs> Do you think you took note of that because you'd come from the classical background? I think that uh, the, the two things played off each other a little bit. I'm not exactly sure what my approach was back in those days where I was kind of still practicing the clarinet a hell of a lot, but also, you know, taking time to play a bunch of guitar on the side I think probably if I'm honest rock music pretty quickly overtook uh, classical music as my genuine kind of passion the thing that sort of kept me up at night you know I started at that stage like staying up all night watching Rage and like recording film clips off Rage and trying to learn the songs the next day and and that kind of stuff. And that passion eventuated in bands tell me about your first band. So um my first attempt to start a band was, well, so this guy, I heard this guy had a drum kit. And um, so I was like, okay, cool. Well, I'm going to come over to your house and we're going we're gonna to jam. You know, this is going to, we're going to make a band because um, I've got a guitar. So I'll come over and we'll do this thing. I remember when I went over to that rehearsal, um, I took two records with me. 
I had a CD single of Cannonball by the Breeders, and um, I had uh, an LP of um, Warren Zevon, a record of his called Excitable Boy, and there was a track on that record that I was totally obsessed with called uh, Nighttime at the Switching Yard uh, because it has this incredible rhythm to it. It's kind of almost a disco track in retrospect, which is not very cool and not very punk at all. <laughs> but the idea was to like combine somehow this track with like the overdriven guitars and stuff of Breeders. And uh, it was a complete failure. I-, I went over there on the pretext of starting a band, but of course I couldn't really play the guitar yet at that stage. And he, this guy couldn't play the drums either. So to mask the fact that I couldn't play my instrument, I would just say to him, right, we, we're going to jam, but first of all, you have to get this beat down because I love this beat. And then we just spent hours of him just trying to do that and me going, no, that's not quite right. And then <laughs> at the end, it's like, okay, cool. See you later. We'll, we'll try again next week kind of thing. So the jamming was just trying to nail this one beat the whole time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that was, that was my excuse. As long as he was trying to get that down, I didn't have to kind of like let it be known that I couldn't actually yeah. play the guitar. <laughs> you're, like, you're the weak link in this band, not me. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. No, I was... Uh, well, you know, every band needs a leader, but ideally that leader should also be able to like play their instrument. Yeah. Eventually you get to your first gig with mm. this band. Yes. Where was that? Uh, this, was a, this was a slightly later band, um, and by this stage I could play my instrument, and by this stage uh, the other members of the band were, were students at, at Brighton High and were incredible musicians. Um, so the first gig we ever played was at the high school swimming carnival and uh, it was a bunch of uh, Hendrix covers and I think there was a tumbleweed cover and a few originals that were kind of just like you know grungy punky things Um, but yeah so that was my first ever public performance uh, singing that kind of music and there there's a VHS of that somewhere as well I would love to see that. I'm just trying to imagine a, a punk band at a high school swimming carnival. Yeah. Well, just imagine a, a bunch of you know, four <laughs> kids in like big shorts with like offspring T-shirts and, uh, and long hair. Just, just kind of, you know. And the crowd's painted in four different colours with like zinc. <laughs> You're competing with house war cries and whistling and cheering and I, I mean the way I, I, I love the way you're describing it sounds incredible I, in reality I think uh the crowd such as it was was like you know a scattering of like 20 people kind yeah. of like <laughs> kneeling on the grass uh politely you know clapping at the end of each track but imagine being up on the blocks getting ready to start the race and you've just got this hectic punk song <laughs> playing in the background <laughs> if I helped somebody you know win some ribbons that day yeah <laughs> uh, that's all the better did your school have Battle of the Bands or anything like that? It did, yeah. So this was the really cool thing about um, Brighton High, which is that essentially I was there to play clarinet and play in orchestras and, and learn music history and music theory, and I did all of those things. But there were also uh, a bunch of students there who were as interested in rock music as I was, and they were all, uh, without exception, superior um, players. And... Um, so once we formed this band, we, we took it pretty seriously, we rehearsed a lot. And one of the great things about the school was that they did um, a day every year called Decibel Day, which was a kind of Battle of the Bands type scenario of bands formed by students at the school. Um, but they did it really well. You know, they hired a PA, they, they set it up um, really well. They got um, musicians from prominent local bands to come in and judge the, the competition. And, you know, 
to toot my own horn, but the uh, the band I was in at the time uh, ended up winning, you know, a few of those competitions. A few years in a row. Technically, three years in a row. We won three years in a row uh, that I was there. champion. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. I mean... I love that you say tooting your own horn like that's the pinnacle of your achievements, Dan. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, in some sense, on some level, it's been downhill since since those heady days. So, yeah, you're in the midst of a meteoric rise to fame while you're in high school, playing all the time, school swimming carnivals, Mm. Decibel Day. Yeah. In the classroom one day, a teacher has a machine which is playing a tone ascending in hertz, mm. and that kind of throws a spanner in the works for you. Tell me about that. Uh, yeah, so this is a sound technology class, and um, the, the machine is, as you described, it was just meant to give the kids an indication of you know the general uh, range of human hearing in terms of hertz, which is, I think, from about 16 to 16,000 is kind of the normal range. And uh, so he turned it on and it was gradually going up and I lost it. It, it, it went silent for me. And uh, I was just sort of looking around at some of the other kids and, and they were all still listening intently. Um, and so I thought, what's, you know, what's going on? What are they listening to? And uh, it turns out that um, I had lost it at around, I don't know, 8,000 hertz or something. Uh, and this came to the attention of my sound technology teacher uh, and he said, well, you, you really need to go and get a, a hearing test because that's not normal. And so I did get a test and it confirmed that uh, at that age, I guess I was about 15, that I had already lost a very significant amount of my hearing in the in the mid and high range frequencies. Um, so everything kind of changed uh, after that on some level. When you say everything changed, mm. what, what do you mean by that? Well, initially it it wasn't like doom and gloom necessarily because up till then I hadn't really noticed any kind of problem so it wasn't affecting me as a musician it wasn't affecting my sort of social functionality or anything like that but the degree of the loss was enough to sort of put a little bit of a scare into the audiologist that I was speaking to and they said look this is something that you really need to keep your eye on so uh, it, it wasn't doom and gloom in the sense that it was like, okay, well, you know, obviously I've still been managing. I can still, you know, it's nothing I can't do at this stage. I'll do what they say. I'll keep an eye on it. Uh, f- I wore earplugs religiously from that point on. Um, and it was just kind of like, yeah, let's just put a pin in it and we'll see how it goes. But there were no fundamental changes in my approach or as far as how much I played or anything like that. Did the news that he'd given you seem very dire at the time? It didn't, no. I mean, the condition I have is sensory neural hearing loss, and that's just a broad term to cover a whole bunch of different ways of losing your hearing, really. And the speed at which it happens is completely idiosyncratic. It's, it's totally different for, for everybody. So about the only thing that, that the audiologist that I spoke with could say for sure, which is that once you're down to the very last bit, it can go really quickly. But before then, we don't know. We don't know if it's going to like be the same in five years or the same in 10 years or like twice as bad in five years. And that's why their advice was, you know, keep an eye on it. But there weren't any treatments that were available. So my, my options were basically keep playing or stop playing, really. So I was never going to stop playing. <laughs> just That just wasn't on the cards at all. Yeah, in a few minutes we'll talk about what you continued to play and mm-hmm. how your musical career progressed. But first, 
I want to jump into a song by the artist who you mentioned before. What's the name of the song? The song is called Nighttime at the Switching Yard. And it's sort of like, yeah, it, it encompasses the story of that first failed jam. But it's also music that just makes me think of my parents because they both loved this artist. And uh, for different reasons, I think my mum loved the Laurel Canyon 70s Linda Ronstadt associations, whereas my dad liked the, the sarcasm and the kind of um, intelligence of the lyrics. But yeah, the the bottom line is it's just it's just a banger. It's just a guaranteed party starter, this one. Well let's start the party here on Out of the Box. This is Warren Zevon and Nighttime at the Switching Yard. You're listening to FBI Radio with me, Mia Hull and Dan Pash. Nighttime in the switching yard. Nighttime in the switching yard. Nighttime in the switching yard. Nighttime. In the switching yard hey. yeah. Nighttime at the Switching Yard on FBI Radio 94.5. Right now on Out of the Box, I am joined by Dan Pash. What did your life look like when you finished school? Uh, so, uh, yeah, so I finished... Um, Year 12 at Brighton High and then went immediately into the um, Elder Conservatorium uh, School of Music, which is the classical um, tertiary institution at the Adelaide University. And I just went straight into um, a performance degree in classical clarinet and was really kind of living two lives a little bit at that stage. So doing the degree by day and then by night sort of rehearsing uh, with some of the same musicians that I had had the band with uh, at Brighton High. So, yeah, it was just all music all the time, pretty much. By then, it's been a few years since you got the initial news of your hearing loss. Mm-hmm. How had it progressed by this point? So, if we sort of skip forward to um, towards the end of the, the music degree, um, sort of, you know, two or three years in of this consistent barrage of music... I had another test which indicated that the loss was progressing quite steadily and this was sort of the first indication that the whole music thing just might be in trouble a little bit. It was at this point that I definitely was now starting to notice the the difference. So with the initial test when I was 15, it was like, oh, this is news to me. Whereas uh, in my early 20s, getting towards my mid-20s, it was... um, no, I definitely know there's something going on now. So I, I, I knew there were things that I was missing. D- describe your range of hearing that mm-hmm. you had at that point. So, okay, so at uh, the initial test at 15, I think I was down to about 8,000 or so hertz, which is already, yeah, it's about, you know half the, the normal human hearing range. And then by my mid-20s, I think I was down to even half that, so probably down to like 4,000 something. Um, For someone that doesn't understand hertz, what kind of sounds are you hearing? Pretty much, once you're down to 4,000 hertz, you're talking about uh, you you can't hear a whole piano, basically. You you lose the piano sort of, I don't know, two-thirds of the way up, maybe, or getting getting towards the the top. I don't, yeah, I'm not sure the exact maths on that. It might be more like 3,000 that that that's when it became an issue, but this was where I was sort of mid-20s. I couldn't hear the top notes uh, top parts of the key like piano keyboard i couldn't hear high instruments like piccolos and cymbals and things like that in in the orchestra i couldn't hear feedback when playing with the band 
So these are things that are not ideal. Again, at the time it was still manageable, but classical music was, was one of the first things to sort of go at this point. In the sense, well, I, I had sort of nurtured dreams maybe of pursuing classical music, um, but it was pretty clear that the loss at this stage, and especially knowing that it was going to get worse and probably fairly quickly, ruled that out effectively. I mean, there's just no way to be a, even an orchestral musician, you know, there's no way to, to do that if you can't hear all of what's happening. Uh, at this point, it was, yeah, still trying to do both, but realizing that classical music really was going to be a, a struggle. So why does classical music have to go, but rock music doesn't? Well, it's just a just a question of the intricacies that one is missing at the higher frequencies. So um, classical music, there's just a lot more going on up up that high. Um, in a rock rock band, yeah, there's stuff going on that high. But if you if you're just kind of like bashing away in a loud room, not not hearing the cymbal is not really going to slow you down at all. I mean, especially if you're not the drummer, right? You can still, uh, you know, at that stage and and for many years to come, I could still hear low sounds. I could still hear enough to base my idea of the song on you know because all you really need for a, a rock song is just a chord and a melody so if those things are both audible whatever else is going on is kind of negotiable as far as i remember i put my clarinet in a case one day and then just never went back you know never really thought about it in retrospect maybe that was maybe you know there were psychological consequences to that that i didn't deal with properly but at the time i was like no shut that door open another one kind of thing. And we opened the door into the rock scene. Yes. What did it look like at the time? Oh, so we're talking Adelaide, uh, early 2000s to mid, mid-2000s. I have great memories of that time. It was, it's, Adelaide's a pretty small scene in general, and uh, the, the indie scene within that scene is smaller still. Everybody sort of knew each other, and uh, things would come in waves. Uh, different styles of music would filter in from America and Europe, and it was an exciting time to to be playing rock music because there was a an attempt to sort of take. Uh, I don't wanna, this is all going to sound terrible, but <laughs> but to sort of take the next step as far as like how can we make the music more interesting kind of thing. And so there were a whole range of influences coming in from Chicago style punk rock. Steve Albini bands like Big Black and Shellac and that kind of thing. And there was also indie music from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, so bands like Polvo and Arches of Loaf and sort of like more noodly, weird guitar starlings. And then eventually there was there were bands like Mogwai from Europe who were playing what then what became known as post-rock. So there was lots and lots of room to experiment with instrumental rock music and broad arrangements and songs that went for 10 minutes and kind of complicated interlocking parts and that kind of thing. So the band I was in at the time, Bad Girls of the Bible, definitely explored all of that. You were talking before about a pressure to, you know, take the next step and stand out as, yep. as an indie rock band. Are you doing that just in the way that you're writing and recording songs or does that translate to the live shows as well? Well, it definitely, initially, I think we were very serious and very, probably a bit self-serious about getting everything right and, and fitting in as many intricate parts as possible. But there was a turning point at one stage where we were playing a show at this, this kind of like out-of-the-way pub. It wasn't in the city, it was out, out in the burbs somewhere, and uh, nobody, really nobody, turned up at all. 
Not um, a single person. I don't think so. No, certainly not deliberately to see the show. I mean, there are other people in the building, other parts of the building. In fact, I think there was like a 21st or something happening at the other end of the building. And we just kind of said, well, you know, what are we going to do? You've got two options at this point. You can kind of like mope around or just go home, I guess. Um, <laughs> or you have some fun with it. And so, yeah, we ended up just kind of going a bit crazy and kind of, you know, shirts were removed and um, <laughs> guitarists wandered out into the crowd, you know, the non-existent crowd, and just went a bit nuts. And from that point on, it was kind of like, wow, this is actually um, a lot more fun than standing on stage and trying to <laughs> impress everyone with our kind of oral navel, navel gazing. And so from that point on, it was, it came about, you know, like, how can we make it this energetic spectacle every night? Let's play a Bad Girls of the Bible song to a huge audience. This, <laughs> this show has millions of listeners. What would you like to play? Uh, okay, so this, this song is called Simple Mistakes. It was on the 7-inch, ended up being the only release that we did properly. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, a co-write, mainly written by um, the person I spoke of earlier, Aidan Moyes, kind of one of his songs. He was a genius, um, and I'm, I was very happy to be able to help him flesh this one out. Um, and it contains kind of all of the different elements uh, in a nutshell that I was talking about earlier. All the labels, they all sort of fit in one way or another. All the little bits and pieces. Indeed. It's Simple Mistakes on FBI Radio 94.5 by Bad Girls of the Bible. Simple Mistakes, it was Bad Girls of the Bible on FBI Radio 94.5. The show's called Out of the Box. I'm called Mia Hull and I am joined by an artist from that band, Dan Pash. Dan, before we were talking about, you know, what it was like to be studying music and facing further hearing loss, I want to jump back into that now. What kind of advice were you getting from doctors when your hearing had reduced by you know, such a drastic rate. So one of the interesting things about the, the process is that the advice itself didn't really change. So the advice from the first consultation when I was 15 uh, was, well, you know, keep an eye on it, wear earplugs and see how you go. By my mid-20s, when it was clear that the process was continuing pretty steadily, the advice was, well, keep an eye on it and wear earplugs. <laughs> Because, I mean, and this is a reflection of the fact that there just isn't any treatment for this, this condition. Um, the, you know, the only treatment is, of course, to get cochlear implantation, but that's further, further down the track. Um, at some point, I mean, it's, for some people at that stage, they might have chosen to, to have an implant, but it was kind of on the cusp. You know, I was still functioning pretty well socially, still functioning well enough musically, and yeah, so what's striking is that the advice itself didn't really change because they don't really know what's, what's going on um, until the process of loss gets to the final stages. That's when people start saying, well, this is go time, you know. So I continued to, to play music uh, f from that age steadily through until 
my early 30s and that coincided with the, the time that I was in Leader Cheetah and um, uh, our first record coming out and, and doing okay and doing a, a lot of touring, a lot of really, really fun touring at that stage around the country, playing some festivals and all the while just doing what they said, keeping an eye on it, wearing earplugs, um, avoiding excessive gratuitous exposure to noise. I did all of those things, but it was clear that the problem was still getting worse and worse. And uh, yeah, eventually with that band, it got to a point where it was just time to, to stop if I wanted to do what I could to preserve the, the small amount of natural hearing I had left just for the purposes of being able to talk to people and kind of have a job and <laughs> do all of those sorts of things. That band that you're talking about, Leader Cheetah, obviously when you're part of that band and making music with them, your hearing is really, really reduced. Mm. Did they have to accommodate for that in the way that you were recording or playing shows? I don't think that we did anything too special. We we um, we rehearsed at a pretty quiet volume. That, that concession was definitely made, but... Unfortunately, if you're going to be a touring band, there's just no way to... I mean, once you get to a certain level, you can do things like you can afford to buy, you know, baffles uh, for the stage. And so, so when you go and see, like, you know, the National or whatever, the drummer is trapped behind these Perspex screens, you know, to protect their Is that to protect them from sound? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was pre-COVID, so... Yeah. Um, it's probably not about germs. <laughs> they... Yeah, it's... Uh, but we, of course, weren't anywhere near that level. So we were just dealing with what we were given, basically, the venues that we had to play and the situations we had to play in. Yeah, I mean, that's the touring part. The songwriting part, there were concessions made in the sense that um, the music was written in, in a, as quiet a space as possible, so it was often just um, the main songwriter and singer, Dan Kranich and myself, uh, just in a room, him with an acoustic guitar and, and me just kind of uh, strumming along or singing along. Um, so, yeah, but it became a sort of two worlds. Once you're in that live scenario, there's just nothing you can do, really. Let's talk about Leader Cheetah outside of your hearing loss because that's that's not really the the pinnacle of this band. You were celebrated in Australia. Tell me about that. Yeah, that was an incredible time, and I I think I went pretty much straight from the end of Bad Girls of the Bible into Leader Cheetah. And the the main songwriter and singer in that band, Dan Kranich, is someone that I knew sort of and and sort of been running into on off and on uh, in Adelaide. And he just basically um, came up because Bad Girls of the Bubble did a few Neil Young covers, and uh, he was a, a huge Neil Young fan also. And so we got chatting uh, on a few occasions, and he said, you know, I've got some songs I'd like to play you. And at the time, I thought, oh yeah, okay. Sure, fine, we'll do that, uh, maybe, at some stage. <laughs> I wasn't super, super interested because I was, you know, I'd just left a band and wasn't sure what I wanted to do, really. But eventually he did come over and play me some songs and it was just, like, immediately clear that this guy was a genius, really, that the songs were just incredible. And so we ended up writing the first record, Sunspot Letters, in what felt like just a really short amount of time, probably, like, a couple of months. Um, and that process was just incredible it was almost just uh effortless in a way um it just came together so easily before we knew it we were getting offers from shows uh, for shows from all over the place um getting some radio play we, uh spunk records put out the first album and it did okay you know it didn't 
go gangbusters, but it did fine. <laughs> um, I think it was a Triple J feature album. Yeah, it was just kind of, of course, now I look back and think, you know, gee, I should have been savoring every single moment. But at the time it felt like, oh, okay, you know, this is, this is pretty normal. This is what happens when, you know, you write a bunch of songs that are okay, you know. Yeah. And by the time that band called it quits, mm. you were living in Sydney. Mm. What was it like for you living here? The early days was that we, the band were recording their second album in Sydney, actually. So the plan was that as soon as that album was finished, I would move to Sydney because my girlfriend Eve had been living here for a couple of years at that time. Um, she had to move here for work. And so, yeah, once that process was over, I moved here and it was kind of a shock to the system, really. I think it's, I've spoken to a few people who've moved here from smaller towns and I think it's probably pretty common. The first sort of six months or so was just kind of like trying to keep my head above water. Do you consider Adelaide to be a smaller town? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, the longer, the further I'm away from it, uh, the smaller it gets. You yeah. Know? You know, that, that's a beautiful thing. It could be a great thing, and I love going back there now. Um, but it, it was just a shock in the sense that I had gone from, you know, working in a record shop for sort of like three or four days a week and saving money in Adelaide to like working completely like full-time over here and just like clawing, uh, you know, tooth and nail to kind of like pay the bills and stuff. So that was, yeah, it was initially a bit of a struggle, but eventually, you know, I found a bunch of like-minded People, friends, musical friends, and uh, and others, and uh, now I just absolutely love it. You know. And you eventually get into the Sydney music scene as well, which we're going to talk about after <laughs> this song. You've chosen a song by Comet Gain to play today. Mm. What makes this song special to you? Well, the um, aforementioned person, Eve Lond, uh, who I moved to Sydney to live with, is in- became increasingly important. Um, musically uh, as the years went on. So initially we probably didn't have any um, common ground musically (laughs) at all. I think she thought my music taste was pretty nerdy um, and she was into like obscure post-punk artists and stuff like that. So I had given up music basically. When Lita just stopped playing, I kind of hung up my guitar and in what felt like a sort of permanent decision really. It was just like my ears aren't up to this. Um, I'm not going to find a bunch of like-minded people who are going to be able to deal with the limitations that my deafness will impose. Um, And so I just didn't play for a whole number of years. And then one of the wonderful surprises of uh, this period was that Eve... um, herself ended up starting to learn guitar and in the blink of an eye was writing incredible songs and she had joined another band called Imperial Broads who who are still going and are fantastic. Um, and at some point the idea was floated that she learned bass um, in order to allow us to make music together, you know. Um, and that worked incredibly well. It turned out that she is also a great songwriter too and one of the first songs that we covered was a song by Comet Gain Record Collections, which had significance for us um, from years previous when uh, she, the first ever mix that she made me, uh, this was the first track on it. And I, it was her way, perhaps, of like introducing me to slightly cooler, mm-hmm. in her mind, uh, cooler artists. And I loved it straight, straight off the bat. It was like, that's an absolute winner. I love this song. And so that was when we started a band together, we decided, well, this is like the perfect song to cover. It's so perfect. And the li- and lyrically, it's so so perfect because the song is a breakup song. I mean, it's a kiss-off song about not wanting to hear your ex's record collection in your brain. 
Whereas for us, it was like a get together song <laughs> uh, in the sense that, you know, she was putting her record collection in my brain uh, by <laughs> introducing me to this song. So, yeah, when we ended up covering it, it, it just has this kind of weird, all these weird uh, overtones, which, which feels kind of punk in a way. I don't know how, but yeah. <laughs> On Out of the Box, we're diving into the record collections of Dan Pash and the stories behind them. And another winner. Another winner. <laughs> we're going to play a song called Record Collection right now. It's by Comet Gain. You're listening to FBI Radio. Record Collections by Comet Gain on Out of the Box. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Mia Hull and my guest is Dan Pash. Dan, you were talking about that song as almost the, the first glimpse of common ground musically between you and your partner, Eve. Mm. Tell me about the project that you and Eve ended up making together and covering that song. Uh, so the band is called Reality Instructors, and um, it started a couple of years ago just um, as a way for, I think, Eve to sort of throw me a musical lifeline in a way. I wasn't playing music. Um, my, my deafness was just too big of an obstacle, I felt, at the time to do the music that I wanted to do. And, yeah, Eve learning the bass allowed us to just kind of circumvent that whole obstacle in a way because um it became just about what we would able to do in the bedroom just with you know unplugged instruments and um just the most basic song structures possible really that was pretty much the only situation in which I could have the confidence to contribute songwriting wise and and to have the ability to, to flesh out basic ideas in a way that wasn't limited by a noisy environment or definite time frame or anything like that. So from these bedroom sessions, you know, some sort of embryonic songs emerged and um, we did a lot of co-writing, which was great. It's kind of a recurring theme for me in the sense that I've been a contributing songwriter in pretty much every band I've been in, but I haven't been the best songwriter in any of them. <laughs> um, whether it was like Aidan Moyes in Baggles of the Bible or Dan Kranich in Leader Cheetah or Eve Lond now, um, I seem doomed to repeat this cycle of coming in to sort of further, you know, to voice my artistic vision and just getting schooled by <laughs> other really talented people. Um, and so in a way that's involved a few sort of blows to the ego, but on the positive side, it's enabled me to learn a whole lot and sort of grow from association with just really, really talented people and Eve is one of those, and, and Nick, our drummer, is another one of those. Again, he was someone that it was really important that he was a friend first and foremost, that he understood what the limitations of the, of the process would be. And so the first rehearsal we ever had with the three of us was just, you know, there was no drum kit or anything, and he was just banging some, like, some brushes on a, on a filing cabinet or something, you know, just, just to get the barest idea of what a song could be. And it somehow worked. And we got to the point of being able to record and, and play some shows, which were, it was just like a gigantic um, bonus for me. 
Describe to me what your hearing was like at that point. What what kind of tones were you able to pick up? Very, very little. Uh, so I think by that stage I was down to, by the end, it was pretty much nothing in, in my right ear. And then my left ear, I think I had maybe a couple of hundred hertz or something. So we're just talking pretty much nothing at that stage. Um, just enough to hear the bottom strings on the bass and maybe the bottom strings on the guitar, um, the lower end of the, the neck on the guitar, and um, and just like the kick drum and snare. Yeah, it's obviously you, your hearing created quite a big hurdle for this band that you and Eve and the drummer made together. Mm. I'm sensing a bit of reluctance in getting a cochlear implant. Why is that? Well, um, I knew ahead of time that um, to hear to hear music through a cochlear implant is to uh, not experience anything like music in the sense that I understood it at that time uh, and still do in a way. I had done a bit of research and spoken to a few people and just, just knew that this was the nature of the technology was that it's not... Um, subtle enough to pick up all of the different details that go together to make the experience of hearing music as we know it um tones and textures and timbres and all this kind of detail and so it was a it was a trade-off really in my mind between continuing to play music and dealing with the problems that deafness involved in other areas so by this stage I was just struggling massively in every aspect. So I was tutoring at Sydney Uni and just really, I can't believe that I still kept doing it at this point, you know, mm. but I did somehow get by. Maybe it was, I don't want to know, <laughs> maybe it was bad, but... Um, <laughs> but. Uh, and do you think maybe because at that point you had adapted this special way of creating the songs in your head that, you know, you don't want to have to learn a whole new way with the cochlear implant? Well... I, whether it's possible to learn a new way with the cochlear implant to me is a fascinating question and is, is that, to me it's just an open question at this point. I'm not sure if it's possible. I'm not sure if it were possible it would be something that I would want to do just because I, I'm just so set in my ideas in my mind of what music is. Um, philosophically, it's a really interesting question. Practically speaking, I'm, I'm not sure if I have the, the guts to do it really. Mm. Um, but, yeah, no, it was more just that music in my way still existed. You know, it wasn't what other people heard when they listened to music, but that tiny little bit of natural hearing together with the internal kind of, you know, mental gymnastics that I was doing was enough to keep that original idea of music alive. And as long as that was even just like a flickering flame, I wanted to keep it. And, and I knew that having a cochlear implant would mean losing that in some sense now it's, it's a really complicated issue i absolutely don't want to suggest that you could have the cochlear implant in one ear and still have some natural hearing in the other ear there's also ways that you can have a cochlear implant and try to preserve some natural hearing in the implanted ear the reason it was an, an either or scenario for me was because it was a, a risk i knew that that the risk of having the procedure meant that the little bit of natural hearing i had in that ear would leave and so as long as there was a significant risk that created this kind of either or scenario and I was determined on one level or another to just ride it out completely you know as long as it was possible to make a song I wanted to be able to make one more song even if it meant that I couldn't do tutoring or I couldn't perform adequately in my job or I couldn't socialize 
normally. And so this had all kinds of, you know, in retrospect, at the time I was like, oh, you know, whatever, I'm used to it. But in retrospect, it was crazy. You know, I, I, was, I didn't speak to anyone. I didn't see anyone. We never went out at all as, as a couple, even myself. I was completely and utterly isolated. I was exhausted at the end of every day of just like bashing my head against this debilitating mm. kind of condition and you know that's the thing like everyone who advocated for the implant um said you will you will the moment you have it you will realize what you're doing to yourself mm. in this scenario and they said it with with all you know the best intentions and stuff but did you uh, have that realization when you finally got it yeah i did yeah <laughs> absolutely did that's the thing like every single bit of you know it's the the implant is exactly as advertised it was something that i was really trepidatious about but personally i think i'm happy with it, with waiting as long as i did and i'm happy with the result once i did decide yeah. to do it when we we played a show and a couple of days later, the final catastrophic loss happened in my r- remaining good ear. It was like, okay, well, that's it. You know, yeah. That is, that, it's gone. It's totally gone, and it's time to book the surgery. Yeah. Well, th- yeah, it, it feels like there's almost a bit of satisfaction in that. You're like, look, <laughs> I've, I've ridden this right until the very end. I, stubbornness, you know, as a yeah. rule, is, is not necessarily a good thing. But in this situation, I, I did it my way, and I'm happy with the results. Uh, by that stage, we had already ha- we already did some recording, uh, some final recording with the band because we knew before, even before that show happened and the, and the last bit of drop off happened, we knew it was not going to be far off. So we had like a handful of songs and we just went into a studio and just rushed them out in, in just like a weekend. Um, Those and- are really interesting conditions for a band to be <laughs> making music. Like the, the time constraint is... One of the musicians is about to lose their hearing. We've got a few weeks. Let's knock this out as quickly as we can. Yes. I mean, yeah, it's pretty punk, right? Um, That's the most punk rock thing I've ever heard (laughs) in my life. Um, But it was tough. That last recording session was tough because um, for the first time I I needed help in a lot of areas. So I needed uh, to be told if I was doing a wrong note, which would have horrified me 10 years earlier. Um, I was so kind of adamant about my skills in that area. But yeah, I was I was fluffing fluffing notes and just not hearing it, so I had to have people point that out to me. Um, singing was really really hard. My internal pitch thing finally had started to go, and so um, I needed help. Um, you know, I had to be told actually consciously to pitch like one semitone below where I thought I should be in order to be in tune. So there were real difficulties with the with the process, but we got through it. And then the process of like mixing and mastering and stuff was done by sort of. The other members of the band and the engineer uh, and our producer Liam Judson describing what was going on. So I sort of contributed via secondhand conversations and stuff like that to, to get the get the thing done. And then we get the cochlear implant, which kind of signals the end of writing with reality <laughs> instructors. Mm. It doesn't, however, signal the end of a different type of writing. You've just finished your thesis. Right. Let's get into that. So actually, it's just uh, I've just had official word that it's that the degree has been conferred. So um, so the the PhD is over. I've, I've got it now. So um, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. That is something that's been on the back burner for for the whole time. So uh, not the whole time, but pretty much since I left Leader Cheetah, I needed to find something other than music to pour myself into because I'm just kind of like that. I need to have things to be obsessed with and so my other 
love, apart from music, had always been academia of one sort or another, usually uh, uh, literature or philosophy or both, philosophy of literature. And so not long after I moved to Sydney and the band broke up, I decided to go back to uni and went to uh, Sydney uni here to to enroll in a PhD. And that's, yeah, it's it's been a number of years, but um, over that period um, I've gotten more and more into it I've really gotten into tutoring and having that kind of outlet for intellectual curiosity and creativity and all that sort of stuff I wouldn't say I'm a a particularly good writer but I found a way to get the ideas onto paper in the end and really it's just the process was about finding um, beauty and inspiration in things other than music you know so in this case it ended up being ideas in some cases, ideas to do with music and art in general. It's um, very much a sustaining passion at this point. So I'm I'm looking forward to pursuing it. What does the future look like for you, Dan? With the thesis being done, the PhD over, there's, there's you know, a kind of plan I have in place for um, next steps. Academically speaking, there's other things that I'm working on, um, trying to write. I'm really enjoying uh, tutoring and, and teaching uh, a lot. And so the plan really is just to keep, keep doing that. And um, as far as, well, one of the great things about the cochlear implant is that it makes all of that possible. It now looks like I'm in a scenario where I can function professionally in, in academia, professionally speaking. So, you know, I can hear what people are saying <laughs> uh, in um, departmental seminars and in classrooms and lectures and all that kind of stuff. So that's, that's great. You know, life with the cochlear implant is, is bright, looking bright. And then I guess in the very back of my mind, there's, um, you know, music is still there, whether it's in uh, the form of this, this EP that Reality Instructors did before the final sort of drop-off and that we're, we're putting out soon. It's going to come out in June, I think, end of June, June 30. Uh, there's that and then there's just you know like we spoke about earlier there's the open question really of what music might look like post cochlear implant Uh, it won't look anything like what it did before but that's not to say that um, it couldn't potentially be rewarding and enjoyable let's end on a nice philosophical question I love that we'll just keep it open (laughs) what what will the future be in terms of music and the cochlear implant who knows absolutely Dan Pash, thank you so much for joining me today on Out of the Box. It's been so lovely chatting to you about this stuff. Thank you very much for having me. No, it's a privilege. What song would you like to end on? This this song is the first single from the EP. The EP is called The Timeless Thread of Reality Instructors. And this song's called I'm Enrolled. And uh, it was written by Eve uh, primarily with a little bit of uh, input from me. And it was the very last song that... Um, I contributed to in any way and it's the very last uh, song that we that we have as a, as a band it was came together really really quickly um, almost like a few days before we were going into the studio um, and uh, so it seems like a pretty fitting uh, <laughs> note to end on this this is it um, that's that's the last sort of the dying gasp of my natural hearing life and uh, I'm really glad that it was a great song that uh, Eve was able to come up with at the last minute. That's really special. Yeah. I love that. So, yeah, the song is I'm Enrolled by Reality Instructors. You've been listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5.
Big shout out to producer Rebecca for helping do all the research for this episode. And stick around. Brie Kennedy's up next for lunch. Bye. (laughs) 